Whatever Lola wants, Lola gets. And little man, little Lola wants you. Hi, I'm Casey. And I'm Matt. And this is Too Much Film School. Today we're going to talk about the new Australian film, The Loved Ones. It actually came out in Australia like two years ago, and we're only just now getting it. But uh, it looks pretty awesome, so I thought it'd be worth talking about. Yeah, it looks like a quirky take on the horror movie. And her name is Lola, and she's not getting what she wants. I'm <laughs> waiting for that song to come up, unless they couldn't get the licensing rights. It seems like it'd be a little expensive for an Australian film that's paid for by the government. It's got some elements that look familiar. Obviously, Prom Night is a big mainstay of the horror industry. And uh, this definitely has the awkward girl on the outside of the cool kids and everything, uh, a la Carrie. But in this one, they're not the ones picking on her and being mean. They are perfectly reasonable and sane, and she is not. Right. You also mix in the family gets involved, which brings the Texas Chainsaw Massacre style in. But overall, it looks pretty unique, even with the familiar parts. The combination is unique. Yeah, ever since, uh, say, Halloween, or even back to Texas Chainsaw, like you said, there's been a sort of process of there's a group of kids and they knock one off and then the second one and the third one until we eventually get to the last person. And this, it seems like she's the, the main girl kidnaps a guy that she wanted to go to prom with and he turned her down she kidnaps one guy and it appears that she probably tortures him for just the length of the film while everybody else is like hey where'd uh, where'd brent go i don't know he's not showing up at prom tonight so <laughs> it's not just one death after another trying to top the previous one in terms of gore or shock yeah and i mean this didn't invent that like japanese uh films and even Eli Roth kind of torture porn have been doing those a little bit or you know Saw does the trapped in a room kind of torturing thing but those Saw movies still go after the the sequence of deaths right and the and and Eli Roth although you're right about the Japanese movies there is a lot of uh yeah the audition and things are more like yeah. one person in a room how much can we torture you yeah right so this has a lot of elements it's a hybrid and yet Again, the combination or the specific cocktail looks like it hasn't been done before. Well, it's also funny that uh, we kind of went towards Saw because the uh, filmmakers from Saw were Australian and kind of put the idea together. And uh, it almost felt to me like the first one was a student film, like audition for, hey, I want to be a director or work in Hollywood and I got this idea. Um, and this also felt a bit like that. Uh, there is, it looks like... 90% of the scenes are in one room of the house, and it does feel a little boxy and set-like. So th they have those elements in common. That said, it might still be good. I actually, just for the record, did not like Saw. A lot of the parts were just really poorly done from a filmmaking style and did feel student film-like. So I can't believe how many people liked that and how many sequels it spawned. I'm actually one of those. I <laughs> I didn't like any of the Saw sequels, but I thought the first one was also, in the, in the same way that The Loved Ones appears to be, it's not one death after another. Unlike there's the sequels where it's just, how many creative deaths can we come up with? The original, it's just two guys trying to figure out how they got there. And yeah, there's some low-budget moments. I can jump in here if you want to discuss the flaws of Saw. Uh, first <laughs> off, how about the entire premise? is freaking stupid. 
Like he's supposed <laughs> to be waking these people up out of their humdrum lives. They're not appreciating life. Uh, and so he's going to shock them into liking things. And they, there's a trap they're in, but they can get themselves out. And if they do, they will love life that much more. They will know what it is to live. The first shot, I believe, is the guy waking up in the tub. Something goes down the drain, right? And he goes, what's going right. on? Oh, I've been drugged. Let me get out. I'm confused. The entire movie progresses. Spoiler alert. The bad guy gets up and was pretending to be the dead body on the floor the whole time. So he's laying there the entire time, as I think Carrie Elways has chopped his foot off at this point and is crawling out the door. The young guy is still chained in there. And the saw guy goes, there was a key in that tub. Oh, you should have figured out to not be drugged and unconscious when the key went down <laughs> the drain, and then you would have gotten out of this. There was a perfectly logical way to get out if you had just not let me drug you. I don't know what... <laughs> He was supposed to do to rescue that key from going down the drain. And again, the whole premise of this is, oh, he's dying and people don't appreciate life, so he's going to show him. The only person we see get out of one of his puzzles is the girl with the head trap, reverse uh, bear trap that's going to rip her head off unless she guts a guy. Danny Glover goes to see her in a mental institution where she's rocking in a corner, hugging her knees. And oh yeah, she looks like she's much better. You awakened her, sir. Good job. You're about to tell me that, yeah, that's her, his daughter. Another spoiler alert from, like, part three. Yeah. People have, when I've ranted about this, they're like, well, later they come back to her. And I'm like, I do not give a crap. And then there's just the poor filmmaking part, such as we go to, with Carrie Elways to the hospital. He talks about the guy dying in the bed. I'm like, why do we keep getting so many shots of the dying guy in the bed? And literally, like, by the third one, I'm like, is he the killer? What is it? Why? And then a nurse has three lines. I'm like, why would they pay this extra to talk? And I'm like, yeah, we're seeing her again. So Carrie always goes to bang her at a cheap motel that is exactly the same hallway that the photographer's apartment is in, <laughs> which apparently was in a barn, because when uh, Carrie always parks his car, it's in a big wooden structure. And guess what? Saw guy, Jigsaw there, which they name him that because that's what he does is take a puzzle piece from all his kills. Oh, wait, no, he did that on one guy. They never go back to that. So they name him for that, but he's like six foot five and 300 pounds or something. He's a big guy. And yet he's crouching in the back seat of Carrie Elway's BMW 300. And he doesn't notice it when he gets in, nor does he notice the guy shifting around to get out of the car when he's trying to activate the door. It's a dead quiet freaking parking structure. You can't hear this guy opening your car door. No, hang on. That, the guy hiding in the back seat is a tradition in horror movies. And you can't complain about that unless you complain about virtually every horror movie that has ever been made. Every other horror movie makes it like an SUV on a stormy night on a rainy highway. <laughs> and they have an axe for some reason, even though you can't negotiate an axe in a back seat. But still, I'll let that slide. This is in a lit parking structure. And again, a it's a four-door, but it's not even the, like a BMW 700. It's like a 500 at most, which is not their biggest one. The guy is like six foot two. He is not scrunching down in between the seats to the point where you can't see him. You go to get in the car and you're like, what the hell is that? Michael Myers does the exact same thing At in the night, first Halloween. In like, I think that was a 1975 like <laughs> Cadillac or Camino. They were huge cars back then. That's true. So. Um, and in Jigsaw's defense, in terms of his plan being kind of ludicrous, he is a homicidal maniac. Like, he's not thinking clearly. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Then who might think clearly? How about a veteran detective police officer 
who tracks him down to his lair using uh, footage or whatever where they see graffiti. And I'm like, oh, that was actually a clever turn. So Danny Glover and his partner go to the warehouse where they find him, right? They find a guy hooked up to a drill that's going to drill into his head. And they're like, oh, wait, we hear someone come and put him back. So they hide. And then Jigsaw walks in with his cape and everything all done up. So the cops can't see him. And I'm like, does he just walk around L.A. like that? It's freaking hot in L.A. <laughs> he, someone would have noticed that, but still. So he walks in. And he goes, ooh, you're pretty scared of me, huh? I'm going to keep my back to the corners that might have police in them just so we can't see who I am. Uh, they jump out and go, surprise, we got you. He's like, oh, my hands are up. Oh, wait, let me just flip this switch and the drill's going to start. And they're like, wait a second, you, you get over in that corner. I'm like, why haven't you shot by now? Uh, <laughs> second off, they put him in the corner. Danny Glover's got him and the partner is trying to stop the drill by pushing on it with his hands or tugging on things. And Danny Glover is holding Jigsaw up against a wall or something with a gun on him, but keeps looking over at his partner because that's what a cop would do when they known murderer is in front of you is oh have you got that drill so he, they finally say where's the key he's like in that box oh there's a bunch of keys he's messing with your mind it is a commercial grade drill with a plug you have a gun there there's like 30 seconds of me going shoot the damn drill shoot the cord on the drill shoot any part of the drill so then finally the partner figures out to shoot the bit off the drill when it's a half inch away from the uh, guy's head. Then Jigsaw surprises Danny Glover with a blade in his sleeve. I think he's had his back to him the whole time, by the way. They never say, hey, take down that hood or face me, because then we would see his face. He spins around and cuts Danny Glover's throat because Danny Glover's the worst cop in the world ever, in spite <laughs> of the fact that he's built an acting career spanning 30 years playing nothing but cops. On the set, Danny Glover should have said, there's no cop in the world that would do this. I object <laughs> to how stupid you are making my cop character look. So once his throat is cut, his partner goes running down the hall after Jigsaw. Jigsaw hides and waits for him. He's waiting for him and he's like, oh, he's coming, good. I'm going to run out into the hallway so he'll chase me and shoot me in the back with a shotgun. That's part of my plan, mind you, right? So he falls on the ground and is pantomiming like he's been shot in the back with a shotgun so that the guy will walk forward and a Winchester rifle, by the way, that is built into the roof. <laughs> I don't know why, if you're going to hide a gun, you would use a Winchester rifle that is like the longest odd thing ever. So he triggers a uh, tr fishing line tripwire that shoots the cop in the top of the head. Jigsaw stands up, like dusts off the front of his cloak. He doesn't even do the classic, oh, I had a bulletproof vest on. He then walks out of the hallway and we see his back with not even a hole in the fabric to go like, oh, bulletproof vest. It was a shotgun in a hallway. He flew forward. They never address why he's not dead. Everyone in this movie deserves to die. <laughs> and they do, I, I'm pretty sure. Yes, they do all end up dying. In the sequels, the ones who survive end up dying anyway, so... The filmmakers as well. <laughs> All right, that's but still poorly made movie. Um, I feel like when you add them all up and you line them up like that, yes, it's probably a little problematic. But I still enjoyed the frights and scares of it. I think I was I was distracted from the frights and scares <laughs> you're referring to by how terrible. I'm just thinking like, oh, are they going to show a bulletproof vest? They're not even going to do that. This is, you really. I hate it when they when they do the uh, when somebody gets shot and they look down and open up their chest to confirm. You know what? They knew that they were wearing a bulletproof vest, 
So so do I, and yet that would have been a million times better than what they did, which was nothing. <laughs> He's bulletproof, is their answer. He's wearing a magic cloak that doesn't get holes in it when shot with a shotgun from eight feet away. Uh. Anyway, the loved one <laughs> has elements that I might pick apart and say, wow, you Australians and your student film-looking things. <laughs> so... But, you know, you got to love them. They have that uh, government program where they actually subsidize their film industry. So it allows a lot of people who maybe didn't get the grooming or may not make movies otherwise. I, I don't know, like you and I. I don't know. Let's move to Australia. Well, they get to make a movie. They subsidize their movies because they couldn't uh, make good movies on their own and be successful in the marketplace like American movies. So there's that. Yeah. <laughs> right. So what you're saying is it's communism. Exactly. Um, wow. <laughs> that's what most of these discussions come down to, is <laughs> Yeah, pretty sure. It comes up a little too much in our podcast. So, it's pretty interesting. I don't know that I'm going to rush out to a theater and see it, since I don't know where it's playing. Uh, but even then, maybe I will catch it some point on DVD. It doesn't seem like a quite a cinematic experience, that you have to be in the theater. But uh, it might be... A lot of fun to watch, you know, in a dark living room with a bunch of friends. So if uh, you're a commie like Casey and you you don't want to see this movie, let us know at too much film school at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I come from a love, love, love.